0: Hi, this is Dr. Adrian Lepresti. Join us on FX Medicine next week where we'll be talking to Dr. Sanjeev Sharma about his integrative and person-centred treatment for ADHD. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app, follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. Welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence based integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Adrian Lepresti, clinical psychologist, and joining us today is Dr. Michelle John Janellis. Dr. John Janellis is Senior Research Fellow and Deputy Director of the Melbourne Centre for Behaviour Change. She has expertise in health promotion, intervention development and evaluation, behavioural psychology, and clinical psychology. She works across multiple and diverse health related behaviours, including alcohol and tobacco control, nutrition, physical activity, and sun protection. Michelle joins us today to talk about developing healthy habits and how we can help facilitate behaviour change in our patients. Hi, Michelle, thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Adrian.
0: That oh, no, was great. I'm certainly interested in talking to you today because of some of the research actually that you've done on you know, children through to older adults on you know, areas of physical activity and your soft drink. I've seen some of the papers you've written on soft drink consumption and you know, healthy eating and even some of your work on uh, e-cigarette use.
1: Yeah, lots of things that people need to be doing to change their behavior for the better. So, definitely most of my research applies to, you know, those things that we all could be doing like as you pointed out, increasing physical activity, eating our fruits and vegetables, not drinking so much soft drink, and of course, you know, not not drinking as much and definitely not smoking or using e-cigarettes.
0: Yeah, great. I know that you do some work at the Melbourne Centre for Behavior Change. Can you tell us a little bit about that center?
1: Yeah, so we're a fairly new centre. We were meant to launch last year and then COVID hit and unfortunately our launch party got delayed. So we uh, basically do research and training and engagement consultancy in relation to all things behaviour change. So we have a, a health focus at the moment. So like I said, all those health behaviours that, that we need to make ourselves feel better and and, and be healthier, mm. not just at the population level, but we also have some researchers working for us who will you know, do this work in specific subpopulation. So, for instance, one of our researchers is currently working on breast cancer survivors or patients, and, and how exercise can be integrated into into their treatment for, you know, when they are doing their chemotherapy, etc. Yes. Uh, and next year, we have our director starting with us, whose work focuses on behaviour change in the context in the context of things like, you know, climate control, climate change, uh, organ donation, all those sort of socially responsible behaviours. So we're looking forward to expanding as a centre and having that arm um, added to our health arm. Oh,
0: well, that's terrific. I mean, certainly today, you know, we wanted to talk about behaviour change and, and, and how we can support our clients in uh, changing their behaviour. So from your research and, and your clinical experience, how difficult is it for people to change?
1: I mean, change isn't easy. We definitely can't sugarcoat that, but it can be made easier if one follows, you know, a set of guiding principles. And that's a really, I think, a really beautiful thing I find about behaviour change is, you know, if there are sort of set prerequisites and if you follow these, then you are more likely to be successful in change. And that applies to all behaviour. So, it doesn't necessarily mean that for each specific behaviour that's presenting in front of you, you suddenly sort of. Have to change your treatment protocol. Mm. Actually, you you know things like making sure the client has you know is motivated, setting smart goals, you know if then planning, uh, self monitoring, all of that sort of stuff. Yep. that's the basic stuff, and that can apply to any behavior. So it sort of, in some ways, makes makes the treatment um, process a little bit easier.
0: Yeah, and that's great. Oh, certainly, today I wanted to talk more about some of those strategies that practitioners can use to support their their clients. I know that uh, changing physical activity, increase, you know, improving the diet and uh, you know, reducing smoking, and all that, and even weight loss. I know there's you know mm. people can you know, really try to exert effort to to make changes in those areas, and the, sometimes they can start off well, and then unfortunately, some of the changes can dwindle off some of the time. So if we use practitioners can use techniques with our clients to help support them through that process that'd be great so i remember i saw a uh, just recently a, a meta analysis on you know, i think it was about 30 odd uh, long-term weight loss studies and most more than half of the people put on all their weight within two years and i think it was about 80 percent put all their weight on after five years so it mm. indicates how important for us as practitioners to be able to support them
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, in some ways, you know, short term behavior change is actually quite easy. Like Mm. if you give someone a couple of weeks, for instance, to, I don't know, lose weight for a wedding or lose weight for an event, people will do it uh, and they won't struggle with it. The tricky part is actually sticking with a behavior change until, you know, it becomes a habit. So, most, like I said, most people will change their diet or increase their physical activity for a few weeks and then unfortunately they'll stop. Before it becomes habitual, and that's why New year's resolutions so often fail yeah uh, because people sort of don't maintain it or they set really unachievable goals for themselves, realize they can't achieve it, and then sort of give up entirely. so if people can you know set like I said set smart goals mm-hmm. and then stick with their behaviour change until it does become a habit, then the success can be achieved in the long term.
0: Yeah, definitely. I was as you are speaking. I was certainly thinking about New Year's resolutions and all the yeah. resolutions that people set. And unfortunately, probably by uh, January second, many of those changes have have stopped, or or maybe many haven't yeah. even started because they haven't really developed a plan to be a good plan to begin with.
1: Correct. Yeah, planning is super important. So we can't just go into something straight away and you know expect there to be change. It's like you know running a marathon without. You know, training for it in the months ahead. So, with adequate planning and also, you know, the motivation as well. There's so many steps before you actually start taking action to to change your behavior, and that's what people often forget. That we we really need to do that pre planning first, Mm. so that when we eventually do start taking action and changing our behavior, we're in the best possible sort of mindset, and you know, we've 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 done what we need to do to make that uh, change successful.
0: I know that uh some, you know often when we have our clients uh, attend our session our practice that it's often assumed that they're they're motivated to change and uh and unfortunately that's not always the case I know certainly when I work with my clients you know they're certainly motivated to get better but in terms of making the specific changes around diet or lifestyle they may not necessarily Uh, had that motivation to change. So how do we assess whether somebody's motivated?
1: Well, I mean, there are a few things, you know, of course. I guess it would be more important to as you've pointed out, not assume that the person presenting before you, because they've, they're they presenting before you necessarily wants to change. Yes. Um, so you want to be sort of getting at their or trying to assess for their change story. So what are the reasons behind why they're changing and then sort of determining whether those reasons, I guess, are enough in the long term. So a lot of people don't realize what it takes to change. You know, someone might come in and say, yeah, I want to increase my physical activity, but I actually don't want to get up at, you know, six in the morning and, and go for a run, or I don't want to come home from work and go for a run. That suggests that their motivation is lacking. They might want, as you've pointed out, they might want to get better, but they don't want to do what it takes to get better. Yeah. So you know, actually explaining to people, well, this is what might be in your future. How do you feel about these things? Um, and if they very quickly sort of come back and say, oh, well, actually, no, that's not what I signed up for, then you know, you will need to do some work around, you know, their motivation and working on what change means to them. And it could be that at that point in time, they might not want to change. But before we assume that, it is worth talking to them about, you know, what Again, what their change story looks like for them, yes, why are they wanting to get better? Why are they wanting to do what they want to do? Is it because they want to run around after their grandkids? Is it because they have a health condition that will worsen dramatically? so things like that
0: okay, all right so so not just talking about the the behavior but also looking at okay well, what's the purpose? behind the change? What's driving you to change? And it might be a a much bigger goal rather than just kind of losing weight, for example, might be to to be able to spend time with their grandchildren and things like that. Is that what you mean in terms of that conversation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you need to make behavior change relevant. Very few people suddenly get up in the morning and go, oh, you know, I'm going to start running at 6am without Mm being motivated to run at 6am. There has to be something behind that decision to change someone's behavior. Mm -hmm. So for instance, smokers will often quit because it's just too expensive to to buy cigarettes and they can't afford it anymore. Uh, They're going without eating or uh, they can't go on the holidays they want to go on. Um, Other smokers will quit uh, again for family reasons. So they want to, they're having kids or their partner's pregnant or something's happening and they want to you know, be there and and live a longer life so they can run around after their kids or grandkids. So the same goes for things like physical activity or um, junk food consumption. You know, people know that it's unhealthy. Yes. So I guess that's something that um, I think is important to realise is that you know people don't necessarily need to be told that smoking is unhealthy or that junk food is unhealthy. We know that, so we need to get at something else that can motivate our clients and usually you know, it is around the family stuff, if they have a family um, or or some other reason. And it's up to the practitioner to, to, to sort of chat with the client and figure out what it is about this client that's presenting in front of you that is going to motivate them. And that'll be different for different clients. So, the motivation is the same. All clients need to be motivated. But what's going to motivate a client will depend on the client in front of you. Mm -hmm. If they don't have kids, then telling them that they can live longer for their kids is not going to cut it. So what else do you need uh, to sort of get an in with your client? What's personally relevant for them?
0: Okay, so if you have somebody, say for example, coming in to, you know, and one of the changes around smoking, you may not necessarily be concentrating on on the smoking, but what kicking the habit will do, you know, in terms of financial um, freedom and things like that and being able to pay the mortgage and, and that might be something that you link their motivation towards then.
1: Yeah, definitely. So like I said, most people, if not all people know that smoking is bad for them, but it is an addiction. Uh, So it does require a different sort of conversation. Um, And for some people, the financial thing might not cut it and you might need to try something else. So again, it's just about figuring out what the person in front of you is going to respond to. So what is their story? What attitude do they hold towards smoking? Mm. Um, you know, how does it fit within their life? Are they worried about not being able to cope with stress? If that's the case, if that's what's preventing them from changing, then as a practitioner, you're going to need to work on that. You're going to need to figure out, you know, how do I get this person to manage their stress levels that doesn't involve smoking? Um, so really sort of chatting to the person about their personal story. And I realize it's it's hard, uh, particularly for GPs who, you know, only have maybe a 10-minute or 15-minute slot. Some GPs only have a seven-minute slot to chat with their clients about this. Yeah. Um, but really important to elicit that story that your client has about their behavior because that's the only way you're going to figure out what it's going to take for them to change.
0: So if we think about... Uh... People and, and the characteristics of people that do change. I mean, what does the research say around what characteristics or individual characteristics increase the likelihood of someone changing?
1: It's pretty much just someone who is motivated, really. So I've, I firmly believe that anyone can change if they're motivated enough to change. So, you know, while there are certainly probably some areas where. You might find some um, sex differences or some age differences. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of the time they're, they're just assumptions. So, for instance, the assumption that as people get older, they're going to slow down and they better not do physical activity because of X, Y, Z. You know, I think we need, to, we need to watch out for those assumptions and just sort of assume that the person in front of us, you know, with the right motivation, with the right tools can, can and has the capacity to change.
0: Okay. Okay. I know there's a lot of um, research around uh, things that might be important in terms of motivation is things like self-efficacy and Mm. one's confidence in being able to change. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the importance of of, of helping support somebody's self-efficacy around change?
1: Yeah. So, if someone doesn't believe that they have the ability to do what it takes to change, then they're not going to be motivated to change. So, if you set a goal with someone or if someone wants to increase their physical activity, if they don't believe they can go for a run uh, and that's different to not being able to. So, if someone has a physical ailment that prevents them from running, that's different. Self-efficacy is someone's belief that they can do what it takes. Uh, so working on self-efficacy, you know, there are four different ways that that um, self-efficacy can be increased. The most potent way of increasing self-efficacy is through what we call mastery experiences. So getting people to actually you know, experience accomplishments. So, if someone wants to increase their physical activity and believes they can't, you might not say to them, well, you know, start by going for a run every day. You might say, how about you start by going for a half-hour walk three times a week and you sort of what we call graded tasks where you build them up um, to the point where they are then going for that run if the run is the end goal or they are then finding themselves in the gym. Yeah. So, like I said, it's what we call those mastery experiences. Setting graded tasks, you don't get people necessarily to quit straight away. You, you know, you for instance quit smoking straight away. You might taper them down. So you might get them to use nicotine patches of different strengths. So the graded tasks are really important, getting them to experience that mastery. Mm. Um, and then of course there are other forms of increasing self-efficacy, so things like vicarious experiences. So getting them to look at what other people have done to quit smoking or to exercise and what did they do that, that they found helped them and getting that sort of support around that. Yes. Hearing other people's stories. Um, yeah. Verbal persuasion is another one. So encouraging your client to to change, being not necessarily positive, but being realistic uh, around, around what they can do.
0: Okay, okay. So really then targeting self-efficacy, you could be really starting small with somebody, getting them to experience some success in change yeah. in, uh, with small changes, whether it be walking or a small change in relation to a dietary change or something like that and getting them to kind of boost their confidence in relation to that then gradually building it up from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Because right. I know obviously lots of people have come in, you know, they may have tried to change numerous times and obviously they've got a history of, of I suppose, from their mind failing. So that's going to have a really mm. negative effect on on their confidence in changing, I suppose, isn't it?
1: it is yes so this you know you find this often in smoking is oh well I've tried to quit you know x x times in the last few years and nothing's worked so what makes you think it's going to work this time and when a client presents to me with something like that I will always sort of question what goal that they had set for themselves for that behavior change often people are setting really unrealistic goals particularly around New year's resolutions you know I'm going to exercise I'm going to be super healthy healthy and then they slip up once and they think, oh, well, that's it. I've I've, I've you know, stuffed up. I might as well just not bother with this anymore. Mm. So making sure that the goals that they set for themselves are the SMART goals um, and so that they're realistic, it's something that they can achieve. And people often focus on sort of the end result. I am going to lose that, the 10 kilos or the 20 kilos. I am going to quit smoking. I am going to... I don't know, yeah. run a marathon, and they what they don't see is the little incremental goals that they need to achieve in the meantime. And so, because of that, whenever they don't achieve that bigger goal, which happens all the time because they haven't set a realistic one, they then experience that sense of failure, and that yeah. then makes them less likely to want to change their behaviour again in the future. So setting those incremental smart goals is really important for you know making sure people experience a little bit of self efficacy and have less of a chance of of um, I guess failing their next one, um, their next attempt
0: yeah so if somebody's then coming in wanting to lose weight, that not might not necessarily be you know let's say it's ten kilos I want to lose. That's not the goal we're going to be really working towards. It's going to be more the process rather than the outcome. It's what things do you need to actually do to get to that yeah. outcome. so that might be you know a, a specific goal around you know, dietary change or something like that and working towards that.
1: Correct, yeah, when it, weight loss is a tricky one because weight loss in and of itself isn't a behavior, so when you're wanting to change someone 's behavior you can't change the, the behavior isn't the weight, the behavior is as you pointed out all the things that go into someone 's weight um so exercise and 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 um and good eating et cetera so correct when you're working on the the broader goal being weight loss, you actually need. Uh, the smaller, smart goals that are around the individual things that that client is doing. So in the first week, it might, you know, it, it might be something like um, making sure I'm eating vegetables every day, or at least one vegetable every day if they've started off eating none. Mm. Or, you know, and again, it'll it'll be different depending on the client in front of you. But if there's a client who, you know, every night treats themselves to, you know, a chocolate after dinner. You might work with them by saying, Well, how about this coming week? A smart goal that you set for yourself is you um, only eat that chocolate Monday to Friday, and on weekends, and then on the weekend, you don't. Or you choose one day where you're not going to eat the chocolate, and then you grade that down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and to use the example I used earlier with the walking, that's how you would approach the physical activity. So, how about this week? You know, we start building in some physical activity, and depending on where you are what your baseline is with physical activity, we can decide what what you might be capable of um, moving forward.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think you know, how you mentioned that weight loss is not a behavior, it's really an outcome and, and really what we've got to be working towards is the specific behavior changes that they need to make. I know certainly when it comes to weight loss, you know, we can't control how much weight we lose but we can control the behaviors that we need to do uh, and then, hmm. as a result, as a side effect, I suppose your weight loss then then occurs over time,
1: yeah, absolutely, yeah, and a lot of uh, clients don't realize that a lot of clients are sort of so focused on the outcome and not the process, uh, which is where it comes back to bite them later on.
0: So we've got then uh, motivation is obviously extremely important. Then you've talked we've talked about self-efficacy. Uh, then you've talked about smart goals and, and making sure that those goals are achievable. And you kind of a graded things, start small and gradually increase over time. So what happens if somebody comes in and, and they've got this goal to you know go vegan and natural and uh, and to be perfect with regards to their eating? How would you kind of deal with a client like that?
1: Well, I mean, I would want to know what the story is behind that, uh, behind that change. So, what why are they coming in and and wanting that? What are the reasons for that? Do they know what uh what it involves um on a day-to-day level? Cuz that's going to get at their sort of um motivation and self-efficacy. So, if this is what you want to do, this is what it looks like. Is this something you're prepared to do? So, really making sure that you're assessing their motivation for that, uh, so that you know increased chance of um, of not failing later on. Mm. So, um, in terms of, I guess, what we would then do with them, assuming that they're motivated, assuming that they have a have a smart goal in place, would then be working on the individual smart goals, and then in terms of how we go about achieving those goals, we can uh, utilize what what we call if then planning. Uh, or which are also known as implementation intentions. So uh, the if is the cue to act and then the then part is the acting. So if someone, for instance, is wanting to uh, yeah, start eating a vegan diet, um, but they keep walking past, I don't know, this burger store on the way home for dinner and they know that they have the desire to go in and buy the burger, mm-hmm. then the if-then plan that they might come up with might be something like, if I'm walking home from work, then I won't walk past the burger store. Or if I'm walking home from work, then I will pick a different path home. So identifying that cue to act and then making sure you act in a different way to what you usually act. And if then plans can sort of can be used for different things. It can be used in in times of of crisis so when you are presented with that burger store for instance or you know when you're presented with a bakery that has really lovely smelling pastries in it and you're trying to to lose weight if then plans can be used for that but they can also be used to um, sort of develop a cue to act in a particular way so if you're wanting to increase your physical activity you might say well if it's Saturday at 10 a.m then I'm going to go for a walk or if it's Wednesday at seven pm, then I'm going to go for a run. So identifying those cues uh, and sort of, I guess, training your brain to then notice those cues and act the way that you would like to act in that way.
0: Okay, so it's so it's about really coming up with, um, you know, developing cues, action, and and problem solving too. So so let's say for example, mm. you know, if I have a craving. Uh, in the evening after dinner, then I will, and coming up with a a plan to kind of manage that craving. Is is that right?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, that would be what we call something that, an if-then plan that needs to be developed in a time of crisis, essentially, when uh, you're faced with, you know, uh, your goal potentially being um, thwarted by something. Uh, So, often people get thwarted by um, feelings of, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, emotional distress. I'm feeling a bit anxious. I would usually um, have a glass of wine at this time, but my goal is to reduce my alcohol intake. So perhaps it's if I'm feeling anxious, then I will, I don't know, listen to some music or have a hot shower or get out of the house and go for a walk or something. Mm. And those if then plans will depend again on your client and what works for them. So for some people you know having that hot shower is going to be enough for others it's not going to be enough to help them with their anxiety they might need to go for a walk yes might need to engage in some mindfulness lots of different things to to help them not drink that glass of wine that they would have usually had in that situation
0: okay so so really then um part of it is about trying to identify if the behavior that they want to change what what function that has so if it's a having a glass of wine is a way that they unwind and that that's serves a function for them, then we need to kind of develop alternatives uh to that behaviour. Is that right?
1: yeah so there are two sort of types of behavior change or or there are two behaviors that often need changing. There's you know doing stuff that improves our health, like mm. you know engaging in physical activity and and eating fruits and vegetables. and then there are the behaviors that we do that we need to not do anymore, like you know drinking, smoking, et cetera. So the approach that you take to both will be similar in some ways and different in others. So if then plans for the former, so the, the physical activity stuff, will be identifying that cue and saying, well, if this happens, then I'm going to go for a walk. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the latter, it will be, as you've pointed out, figuring out what function that particular problematic behavior solves and it does solve a function people don't do bad things or don't engage in maladaptive behaviors for no reason it is serving a purpose for them whether that's anxiety re- reduction or stress relief or or something often you know it is there is a distressing emotion that they're trying to avoid these behaviors maladaptive behaviors are often avoidance behaviors yep um so it it is a matter of Figuring out for your particular client what function it's serving and then making sure that there are alternatives in place. Otherwise, they're not going to be motivated to change. There's a great saying uh, that I always think of with my clients it's, you know, never tear down a wall before first understanding why that wall was built. So if you go about tearing down someone's wall and not having anything there to replace them with, then they're going to be very distressed potentially if they are using that wall to manage their emotional distress, for example. Mm. So, definitely making sure uh, and assessing what function a particular behavior is serving and then making sure there are alternatives or substitutions before you go ahead and tear that down.
0: And that means really coming up with realistic alternatives for them, isn't it? Because I mean, it's, if somebody's smoking as a way to cope with stress, then engaging in four, you know, five deep breaths is, may not necessarily be the, may, may not necessarily cut it for them. So we really need to kind of think about: okay, what effective individual alternatives can this person use to help manage their stress rather than then reverting to smoking
1: yeah correct, uh, and so you know that 's why there are things like um legitimate low fat alternatives to particular products so if you 're saying to someone if someone 's wanting to lose weight and one of their goals is to you know um, consume less high fat foods, then there are low fat alternatives out there mm. that they could consume instead, so we 're not sort of saying hey you 're not allowed to eat that chocolate bar anymore or you 're not allowed to eat that particular yogurt anymore. Um, when you do go and pick your yogurt from the store, perhaps pick a healthier type of yogurt. So we're not, we're not removing that um, you know, thing that they like entirely, but we are you know, coming up with a different alternative or a substitute. That's not to say that the alternative or the substitute that we come up with is better or is going to fulfill that need of theirs as good as the smoking did, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it will sort of help a little bit um, and then they can attempt to manage whatever doesn't help by, you know, engaging in other behaviours or recognising that actually change is hard and I've just got to um, be mindful of this and, and work through it and ride, ride this distress like a wave, like I'm surfing a wave.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know that. uh, If, if if for me, for example, I had a, and I do like chocolate, I must admit. But you know, evening, if I was having problems with eating chocolate in the evening, substituting it with a carrot is probably not going to be that effective effective for me. No, no, definitely um, not. (laughs) So it's really starting with something an alternative. It might be even just having a smaller amount initially. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. So can you have half the chocolate bar instead? Or, you know, when you go out to the shops and you you stock up on your chocolate, I guess, instead of buying the bigger chocolate bars, can you buy the fun size packs instead? And so then you just have like a fun size Mars bar, for example, instead of the king size Mars bar. Um, so it also works with ice cream. So rather than sort of having the big four-litre tubs that you then scoop out into a bowl, and you know, it's really hard to measure that, perhaps by the single serve ice creams instead. So Mm. a single serve paddle pop, for example. And then there's a very clear, there's an end to this. I have had my paddle pop rather than sort of, I've just put six scoops of ice cream and now I'm going to add ice magic and sprinkles and all of that sort of stuff. So yeah, certainly before we necessarily get rid of a behavior or get rid of a product like, like chocolate, for example, you know, stepping down. So it's actually not that much of a I guess, a fright to the system when we suddenly don't have that chocolate in the evenings because we've been, you know, reducing our intake over a couple of weeks already.
0: And I think that's where we really need to work uh, with our clients, and not only hear what they're saying verbally, but also looking at their non-verbals to see whether they are actually engaging in with some of the recommendations we're giving them. So I know for me personally, uh, I've been experiencing an injury with my knee, and I've gone to the physio, and the physio recommended a whole range of exercises. Which verbally I said, "Yep, I'll go ahead and do, do them." But in my head, I was thinking, "Well, are they really going to work? Are, are they actually going to help heal my knee?" Because they didn't seem intensive enough, and And I suppose maybe we just needed to have a bit more conversation about why those exercises are there and what the process is over time, you know, how the intensity of those exercises may change over time. And that might have then increased my my confidence in some of the recommendations that that physio gave me.
1: Yeah. So... Very important as practitioners to always provide a very good rationale to your clients for why you're wanting them to do a particular exercise or change their behavior in a particular way. So clients will will almost always come wanting change immediately. So as a clinical psych in private practice, I see that all the time. Clients just come and they want to, you know, implement widespread changes. Mm. And so, talking to clients about why that's not going to work, how that is a recipe for disaster, how if you take the time to to do that planning and to grade yourself up to a particular goal, you'll have greater success than if you just launch into it. So, again, that marathon analogy that I used earlier If you decide you suddenly want a marathon without training, you're probably going to get a cramp within a couple of kilometers of being in there and you won't be able to finish the marathon. So framing it like that, framing it as getting that practice up, building up your skills, building up your your self-efficacy, so actually change is more likely to happen yes. and you know some clients will will might not respond very well to that but i think if you take the time to actually provide that rationale most clients should should see where you're coming from and be a little bit more on board with the treatment plan But obviously, you know, another point to remember is that this should be collaborative. It should be a collaborative effort with behavior change. So rather than sort of the practitioner saying, well, you need to start exercising and I think you need to do this, 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 and this, Mm -hmm. and talking with your client and going, what do you think you can manage this week? You know, if I was to say, can you go for a walk four times this week for half an hour, how does that sound to you? You don't have to like it just let me know what you think. And then if the client says, oh, actually, no, I don't think I can manage that. Not a problem at all. How about three? Or how about two? Or how about just one day? Mm. So it really is a collaborative effort, which is also going to make it more likely that the client engages in that behavior because it's coming from a bottom-up approach, not a top-down practitioner imposing something on the client.
0: And that's where I often uh, will think about the stage of change model. And so, just for people who aren't aware, the stage of changing pre contemplation, contemplation, action, and then maintenance. So, and I often think about like when I'm seeing a client, they might be coming in. So, let's say, uh, you know, going for a run, for example, and, and I'm not a big runner. So, if somebody recommended running to me, um, I would be in the pre contemplation stage for running. Um, but mm. if it was something like going to the gym, which I enjoy more, uh, I, might, I would be in the action change uh, for going to the gym. So if we think about it all and we go, okay, well, wh- where am I at with regards to exercise? That might be a bit too broad. Might be actually breaking it down into going, well, what about this specific behaviour? are you, Where are you at in relation to the different stages of change for this specific behaviour, whether it be an exercise whether it be a dietary change, I'm not a big seafood eater. So again, I would be a pre-contemplation if somebody recommended a lot of seafood. But when it comes to mm. other foods, then I might be in the action stage. Any comments on that?
1: yeah and a lot of clients might come with this assumption that uh, and this fear I guess that oh, I want to lose weight or I've been told I need to lose weight for it to get a particular surgery on my knee or whatever it is. Yes, you know this means that I'm going to have to start exercising every day and it means I'm going to have to completely change my diet and so there is a little bit of a fear there and so and and a reluctance to then engage in behavior change so making sure that you know you nip those assumptions in the bud very early on and i'll often say that to my clients i'll say look i just want to start talking to you about this stuff i don't expect you to go away from this session today and suddenly change your life and be doing all these things right we're just having a conversation i want to know what you think you can manage this week mm. what one thing that you could potentially do that is a change no matter how small what does that look like for you, so, as you've pointed out, you don't eat seafood, obviously, fish is an important part of of someone's diet. I personally hate fish and I don't eat it. So if I had someone saying to me, "You really need to increase your fish intake, I would say, "No, thank you, I don't want to do that, and that's perfectly fine it's 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 about changing and well how else can we? change your diet for the better. What if I was to say this instead? And getting that, that collaboration right so that the client does stick with it. Um, and yeah, addressing those fears that behaviour change means getting up at 6am and going for a run every day because that's not, that's not what behaviour change is about and that's not what's going to be sustainable in the long term.
0: Okay. So we've got, as a practitioner, we need to make sure that we have a, a really good assessment uh, to identify where the client's at and their motivation is at, obviously having good rapport with our clients. And then there's developing realistic goals, which are collaborative, which which the client is involved in and ensuring you get feedback throughout the process from them. Are there any other factors that we can address with our clients when it comes to behaviour change?
1: Yes, that's, a, that's a, the, the main one. There are a few other things that um, practitioners will need to, to do with their clients. So, a big one is the environment. So, if a client is coming to you wanting to change, what's the environment that they're living and working in and is that conducive to change? Hmm. So, are there potentially some enablers in their environment for poor behavior? So, for instance, smokers, will often have a group of friends who also smoke. And so if you have a client coming to you wanting to quit smoking, then their friendship group is potentially going to act as a barrier to that. So you want to also be working with your clients on what's likely to get in the way of this behaviour change that's not sort of generated by you. So let's assume you can get up every morning at 6am and go for a walk or go for a run. Mm-hmm. Um, what other things might get in the way of that that aren't that are more external to you? Um, So, the smoking one is a big one, especially if, you know, there's only two smokers left in the group. Your client is one of them, which means the other smoker in the group will be on their own outside having a fag. You're going to have to sort of work with your client on this other smoker friend of yours is really going to want you not to quit smoking because they don't want to be alone outside. So, what, what sort of skills do you need to be able to say, hey, actually, um, no i 'm not going to go out and have a cigarette with you, so also working with your client on identifying potential barriers in the future and coming up with if then plans to to help with those barriers. Yeah. another one would be something like a client who wants to reduce their alcohol intake, but every Friday after work, you know they go for a drink at the pub with their work colleagues. You know do they need to perhaps not do that for a few weeks mm. um, or do they need to suggest a, a different venue? Do they suggest an activity rather than the pub for example? so working with your client on those behaviours um, after sort of you 've set the goal that's another important thing that I would encourage practitioners to check in on.
0: So that really involves obviously talking a bit about the, the pros and cons of change and, and some of the, the consequences or, that could occur as a result of change and that could potentially mean changing your social group if if you're hanging around with smokers or if you're hanging around with people who drink a lot um, and we really need to have those conversations in our sessions with clients because it, to, to to be successful in change, it could result in traumatic lifestyle and environmental changes, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I think as practitioners, we tend to focus a lot on the pros of behaviour change because we know how important they are. We know how much, um, how healthy it's going to be for the client to change their behaviours in a different way. But again, going back to what I said earlier around don't tear down a wall before you understand why it's being built. Mm-hmm. If we don't do the assessment around what what are the consequences of this? Because there will be consequences for the client of changing their behaviour. not Maybe not necessarily with things like physical activity, but certainly with things like smoking and... Um, and you know eating junk food, for instance, there might be some consequences to that, so there might be a loss of um, self a self soothing mechanism mm. if they're using junk food to to cope with a particular distressing response, or there might be a loss of a friendship circle or if you know difficulties in a friendship circle and so making sure that we don 't just focus on the pros of behavior change but we also understand what the consequences of that is for that particular client and then planning for what's going to happen when those consequences eventuate and how our client is going to manage that yes. so that they don't, you know, sort of give up and revert back to their, their pre-change ways.
0: Yeah, and that's absolutely crucial. You know, we need to be aware that it's not just all positive. There are a whole bunch of potential negatives and, and difficulties that a client is going to encounter when, when changing. So now the million-dollar question, if I change my behaviour, how long does it take before it now becomes a habit?
1: yeah that's a tricky question uh so there are obviously loads of rules of thumb out there, things like you know ten thousand hours and you know it's just like that they're rules of thumb um, mm. some behaviors like quitting smoking, that's a nicotine addiction that's gonna be a harder habit to change than taking up exercise, for instance so uh, there's no hard and fast rule. It really just depends on, you know, making sure that your client is engaging in those steps. What I can tell you is that it's going to take a lot longer if you don't do the pre-planning as a practitioner. If you don't assess for motivation, if you don't assess for self-efficacy, if you just launch straight into action without taking those planning steps, you will come into uh, trouble later on, and it's just going to blow out the amount of time that it takes to change someone's behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, whatever it takes for a client to turn it into a habit um, to make that response automatic is, is just however long it takes. So sorry, I don't have a, a lovely neat rule of thumb there for you, um, but a lot of clients will come in assuming that it's going to be 10,000 hours or four weeks of doing this every day. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly not the case. So that's sort of another assumption that you're going to want to nip in the bud with, with your clients presenting before you.
0: And that's where things like, you know, obviously relapse prevention comes into play because we know that even if somebody's engaging in a behaviour for a year or two years, uh, something happens in their life, uh, there's a highly stressful period, they start smoking again and then they kind of think, okay, well, I failed uh, and they give up and, and I know that's a lot mm. of work, a lot of research on relapse prevention side of things too.
1: Yeah, and I'll often talk to clients about lapse versus relapse. So, you know, if you're working towards your goal and and you find yourself having that chocolate bar at night time, Really working on that black and white thinking of, I might as well just give up now. Mm. So, what you've had is a lapse, but you haven't had a relapse yet. A relapse would be going back to all your old behaviors and not attempting to change at all. Mm. Uh, so, you know, a lot of clients are very concrete and black and white about this stuff. And, oh, I've had a cigarette and that's it, back to square one, uh, w- which is not the case. So, I'd also encourage practitioners to have that lapse versus relapse chat with their client. Uh, you know, tell their client that that they could, you know, expect to lapse at some point in the future and then that's perfectly okay. It's just it's then up to the client to, you know, implement things to prevent it from ending up in a relapse. And so working with your client on, well, if you have a lapse, what are you going to do? What are you going to think? What are you going to do? What sort of um, coping statements can you say to yourself so that you don't end up you know, back where you were when you first came here. Mm. So I sort of like to call it uh, relapse prevention, in by focusing on lapse, um, working on what happens during a lapse.
0: Yeah, and it's just normalizing that it's inevitable that you know, they're going to lapse at some stage, particularly around eating and exercise and and mm. so forth. So. And that's also where we can also have conversations about, you know, future potential high risk times, you know, are there there situations in the future that may uh, increase the risk of you reverting back to your old habits? How do you kind of then work through that and what are some coping statements you could use and and some problem solving uh, steps that you could kind of engage in to help sustain change and get back on track?
1: yeah absolutely so for for the smoker example you know if even if let's say you've been avoiding your friends for for a couple of months you're smoking friends um but you know Christmas is coming up and you're you're catching up with your family and there's a couple of smokers in your family. How are you going to manage that Yes, you know when you've been sort of avoiding being around smokers and do you need to uh, graduate your in you know graduate how often you catch up with smokers in the meantime um in terms of eating? a high-risk time is always Christmas, but that's, again, very normal to sort of overindulge at Christmas time and, you know, working on, okay, well, Christmas is over now. It's now the new year or it's now the 28th and I'm going to go back to attempting to eat, you know, like I was before, Mm. uh, before Christmas happened. So, as you've pointed out, identifying potentially high-risk situations and coming up with a plan that's very specific to your client around how they're going to manage that.
0: Yeah, and, and, and being aware of what the definition people are using. You know, if they're saying that they want to be a healthy eater, what does that actually involve? And and uh, if you're during Christmas time, you're indulging, but the mo- rest of the year you're eating really clean, I mean, that's still healthy eating and that's something that people need to just be aware of. It's not uh, hard and fast black and white rules of either you're, you're unhealthy or you're healthy or you're an exerciser and you're a not-exerciser and, and even smoking. If you engage in you know smoke a couple of cigarettes, you still may define yourself as a non-smoker who occasionally has a couple of cigarettes and that might then help them uh, be realistic and, and, and I suppose more, more reasonable with themselves more rather than, than having these black and white rules around Cannot can not do that, and if I do that, then then I've given up and I've, I've failed. So I think that's really important too.
1: Yeah, and this sort of talk goes back to what we mentioned about earlier in terms of the reasons why behaviour change, you know, often fails. It's because something hasn't become a habit, but also because people are very black and white in their thinking. They come with very unrealistic, rigid rules and smart goals, and then as soon as that that Goal is broken or isn't achieved, then they revert back to the opposite, so definitely wanting to talk to clients about being flexible yes um, and you know everything being on a continuum, having said that, of course, there are some behaviors that you know things like smoking where we want to be a little bit more uh, rigid about that stuff, so you know, We've done some research where people classify themselves as a non-smoker or they classify themselves as a social smoker. I only smoke when I'm out with others, but actually I'm out with others every week. That now makes you a smoker. That doesn't make you a social smoker. You are at harm. Mm. So also working on people's definitions of things. Another one would be sort of, oh, you know, I don't drink every day. I only drink on weekends when I'm out with my mates. But when I drink, when I'm out with my mates, I'm drinking seven, eight, nine, ten standard drinks every weekend. So watching out also for your clients' definitions of of certain things like social smoking, like like drinking, because actually they might be engaging in behaviour that they don't realise is putting them in harm's way, but they're just sort of you know, assuming that, oh, it's fine because I don't do it every day. So being sure as a practitioner to assess for that too.
0: Yeah, so, so it could be the definition could be either be too rigid or on the other side it may be something that they're just minimising and, and not really acknowledging the severity of the problem for them. So, Absolutely,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: So is there anything else, uh, we could keep going for hours, I suppose, talking about this, but yeah. uh, is there anything else that uh, you think be useful for practitioners to know that we haven't covered uh, so far?
1: I mean, the only the part of the sort of uh, behaviour change model, I guess, that we haven't touched on is the self monitoring part. So, once you send your client off, um, you've done your planning, you've set your SMART goals, you've set some if then plans, the client goes off and takes action. They need to be monitoring that action. Uh, they need to be monitoring every day what they're doing. So, if they had a Specific plan for a particular day. Did they accomplish that plan, or did they not? If they didn't, that's perfectly fine. What happened? What got in the way of of that plan, not sort of not sort of happening for you? Mm. Uh, if it did, great. And then, so then when they come back to you a week later or two weeks later, you can have a look at the monitoring, and you can say, well, you know, maybe we can make your goal a little bit more difficult. Like you you seem to do it every day, or you met your target for the last couple of weeks. How about we make this goal a little bit trickier for you? Um, and conversely, actually, you didn't meet your target. Maybe we've overextended the goal, and we need to sort of pare it back and come up with a more achievable goal for you. You're not going to be able to have those discussions if the client isn't monitoring. And you know, in this day and age, there's lots of great apps. For, for monitoring um, for monitoring behaviour change uh, and also there's, you know, just the, the old school paper and pen. You yes. know, you work out with your client what you need to assess um, and you send them away with a piece of paper and you say, hey, every time, you do this, tick this box, give yourself a gold star. Every time you don't do it, leave the box blank and then we'll come back and we'll we'll check that out. Mm. So monitoring is super important because it facilitates goal review and that goal review might end up in a more difficult goal or it might end up in a slightly easier goal and then you start the process again of, of taking action. So that's the, the other sort of, you know, part of the of the model that I would recommend practitioners engage in it's, it's often a forgotten one. It's they send out off you go, take action and the monitoring can often be left behind, but that's pretty critical too.
0: Great, great yeah, I think certainly monitoring is an absolutely important component to change so now are there any just finally, are there any resources, books or courses that uh, can help practitioners learn more about behavior change and support their clients' behavior change efforts?
1: I mean, there are definitely lots of sort of resources and and books out there. Uh, some books um, will often focus on a particular behaviour, so things like weight loss or, or eating. Mm-hmm. And the course that we have on offer at the Melbourne Centre for Behaviour Change, uh, which is called Behaviour Change for Clinical Practice. Um, so we've developed that course. Uh, for allied health professionals and we've done some research with allied health professionals to make sure that the course does suit their needs. Mm. So, in that course, we deep dive into each of the different things that we've talked about in, in today's podcast. So, how do we increase motivation? Uh, how do we increase self-efficacy? You know, how do we set goals? How do we make habits? How do we uh, help clients break habits? Or from a uh, an allied health practitioner's Perspective. So, yes. in the last course, we had lots of physios in there and GPS. Um, if anyone is interested in knowing a little bit more, then I would say you know the the course that we have on offer is very very practical. Mm-hmm. Um, there are videos that I'm in showing people how to how to have a session with a client. Um, so, I'd highly recommend recommend that for some fairly easy viewing rather than having to go off and read ten books because they have different sort of habits that they look into.
0: Yeah, I've had a look at that course and it looks, looks great, so I certainly recommend it for anybody who's interested in, in helping their clients. Just finally, any apps that you would recommend for monitoring behaviour change? Is there anything specific that you've used? Um,
1: yeah, so there's a uh, an app called uh, Habitica, H-A-B-I-T-I-C-A. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a behaviour change sort of specific app that people can use. It sort of um, uses the principles of gamification. Uh, so sort of we, we know that gamification increases users' engagement with an app. So Habitica is one that people can try. Mm-hmm. If you are more in the mental health um, space, then the other app I would recommend Recommend would be uh, Mood Mission. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a really excellent one too that I found. Um, you know, it has a, a bit of evidence behind it too. So Habitica and Mood Mission. Uh, there are loads of other ones out there, but these are the two that are sort of I found are, um, free, which often helps. They're free, so you can recommend them to your client in session and get them to download it straight away. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, fairly fun to use and, and increase engagement.
0: Well, thanks, Michelle. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. And uh, thank you for the great work you're doing in this area. You know, It sounds like you're, you're certainly providing much needed information uh, for us as practitioners and I uh, highly recommend the course for people in the future if they want to do it.
1: Yeah, no worries at all. It's been great chatting. Thanks, Adrian.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Adrian Lopristi for FX Medicine. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.
1: Hi, this is Dr. Janet Sloss. As the number of cancer survivors rise, there is an increased need for natural and integrated practitioners to support the late and long-term side effects of patients' experience as a result of their treatment. Join me for Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery, Rebuilding Patients After Cancer Treatment on August 10th, where I'll lead you through some common treatment strategies I use in my own clinical practice. Go to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your place today.